Bible, raise your hand, we'll give one to you. And in that Bible that we hand out, it's page 754, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38 today. Now, this message is for anybody who doesn't feel like they're the super Christian. Anybody not feel like they're the super Christian? Yeah, some people are raising two hands in the back, yeah. Um, and I know how, it, you know, we walk into this room and we look around, we don't know everybody, and we go, oh man, look at all these people, they're so good, you know, they're just like Jesus. We sort of make, we, we make this assumption, <laughs> we make this assumption that people have it all together, they're following Jesus, and their life is going just perfectly because they love God so much, and He's rewarding them, and, and we just sort of make this crazy assumption, when in reality, if you're sitting in my seat, and you get to know us all, and you know me, and you realize we're all kind of a mess, and we're on this journey together. I love what Miguel said this morning, that we gather together, not because of, of, that we have it all together, but because we don't. We gather together because we don't have it all together, and we need one another, and we need the Lord. And so when we walk in here, we're, none of us is a super Christian. Only Jesus was a super Christian. And the rest of us are sort of stumbling along, muddling along in the process of following him. In his grace, he's making us more and more like him. But we have so far to go. We have so far to go. So today's message is for any of us who feel like we're not the super Christian um, and and. and, and Maybe it's even the case um, that, that you feel alone in that, and I want you to know today that you're not alone in that. We're all in this boat together. And, and maybe it's even the case that God has you in the place he has you because he's, he, it's exactly where you need to be, and he wants to do something special in your life even right now. So um, we're going to explore the life of, of somebody who, who was kind of a super Christian and ended up not being so much so, and that is... Uh, the disciple Peter, today, starting in verse 31 in chapter 22. Now, a little bit, little bit of background here as we get back into this text. You know that we're moving now towards the cross. We're coming to the end of the Gospel of Luke, and all the, the, the tension is ramping up. There's an intensity around us, and a spiritual kind of darkness that's surrounding Jesus, and, and the intensity is ramping up. He's, he has been, uh, he has been uh, hunted. He has been betrayed so far, he's going, to be more, he's going to be more fully betrayed in the next little while. Um, he's going to be denied. He's in the process of being denied already by the people who love him. And stunningly, in the middle of all this, Jesus is in control, not only of himself and his own emotions, but of everything that's going around. There's little hints in the text that keep reminding us that while this seems so chaotic and crazy, actually, Jesus is in control of everything that's happening And then what's ironic about it is that all these people, the people that hate him and the people that love him, they're all turning their backs on him. What's ironic about this is that as he moves forward, he is about to commit the greatest act of love that was ever committed in the history of the world. So as they're turning away, he's turning towards. And and that's that's kind of the background. That's the environment in which this is taking place. And this is just another step in that process of people turning away. Verse 31, Simon Simon, now it's already interesting, this text is, because Jesus has renamed this disciple that's called Simon, Peter, when he started following him. But now he's going to go back, and it's a little hint of what's coming, and he, he, he calls Peter by his name, Simon, which is the one he had before he was connected to Christ. Simon lived a life apart from Christ. Christ came in, changed him, changed his name. And now Jesus is referring to him as Simon. So 
what's going to happen here is Simon's going to revert back to his pre-Christ life on some level. And Jesus is giving a little harbinger of that as he calls him Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now, the word you is really you all in the original language. And so it's meant to be you uh, as the chief disciple and all of the other disciples as well. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you all like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He said to him, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. It's evening, had the last supper together. They're about to go out and pray. And and by the morning, when the rooster crows, Peter will have denied Jesus three times. Verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Remember back to Luke chapter 10. Those of you who were with us way back, Luke chapter 10, Jesus has the disciples in a kind of an apprenticeship mode, and he sends them out. He sends them out, and they're all well taken care of, and they, they, don't, they don't face much opposition. They seem to, to have victory wherever they go. And they come back, and they're all excited, and even the demons obey us, and they're excited. When Jesus is saying, well, things have changed a little bit now. Um, just as the darkness is surrounding me, because you are my followers, the darkness is going to surround you as well. They said nothing. They didn't lack anything. Verse 36, he said to them, but now, see, the, the environment's changing. Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. In other words, the environment is becoming more hostile. And so they're going to have to be going out with provision and protection. Verse 37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. This is from Isaiah 53. We know that in a short while, Jesus will be hanging on that cross between two prisoners, and he will be numbered with those transgressors. But in a larger sense, Jesus is identifying not with just those two prisoners on the crosses next to him, but with every single one of us, because they're representative of us all in some way. We are all transgressors. We all sin and fall short of God's glory, and Jesus is on the way to identify himself with us on that cross. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Verse 38, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, scholars debate that last verse and what's the meaning of it, what's intended there. Most likely, it seems most reasonable in my mind, that Jesus, again, is speaking in a more figurative way, in a larger scale. He's talking about the hostility and the sword that he's requiring of them is more of a figurative kind of sword. But as the disciples are so often hard-headed, they don't get it. They think he's speaking only literally. And so they look around and they say, oh, Lord, we have two swords. And they're probably these short little daggers as if that's going to be enough against the hostility and the evil that they'll be facing in the world. And Jesus, as he often does, tires with their hard-headedness and says, and this is a Semitic way of saying, um, 
let's drop the conversation. It is enough. It is enough. Because he's taken them as far as they're able to go in terms of their understanding. Now, Lord, we ask that you open up this text for us. I have a sense, in fact, I know that some of us in this room need this text right today. We need the words to be piercing into our soul. I need these words to pierce into my soul. And if that's not the case, Lord, then it will be someday because all of us will face what Peter is facing here in his being sifted. And so we pray that you'd be preparing those of us who are maybe not in a, in a difficult season right now, preparing us for when that season comes, that we might remain faithful in the midst of it and draw from your strength and your power. So teach us today, we ask. Come upon us, Lord Jesus, in the name of Christ, I ask. Amen. Amen. So uh, Hawaiian pastor Wayne Cordiero uh, wrote a book called Sifted, and it, it starts off with this text. And He makes a good observation about what's going on here. He says, in Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples that Satan has asked to sift them as one would sift wheat on a threshing room floor to separate the good from the bad. Jesus encourages his disciples by telling them that he has prayed for them that their faith would not fail. I don't find this very reassuring, he writes. What I'd like is for Jesus to pray that Satan would be thwarted or even that God would dispatch angels to assist me, but that my faith would not fail? That doesn't sound very reassuring. Jesus, by praying this way, seemed to suggest that there's a very good possibility that my faith might indeed fail. I could picture myself dangling over a cliff, yelling for help, while my friend kneels at a picnic table and tells me that he's praying that my faith will not fail. We can relate, right? When we read this text and we recognize that Jesus is going to pray for Peter in the midst of this, and we sort of ask, well, Jesus, why don't you do more than that? Why don't you intervene? Why don't you stop this from happening? Well, there must be something good that's going to come out of Jesus allowing Peter to be sifted. And we see that in our lives as well. There is something good that comes from the process of sifting. Now, sifting simply means, as Wayne Cordero says, separating the head from the unnecessary bits. So in literal terms, you know, you've got the wheat and you sift and you separate what you don't need and and then you keep what you need. So kind of remember that because that's a big part of what the process of spiritual sifting is like. And so figuratively, uh, sifting refers to a time when circumstances, so you look at Peter's life and there's a difficult circumstance that he's facing. His Lord is going to the cross And he is going to be challenged in the midst of that. There's going to be great loss. He's facing a difficult circumstance. But it's not just that, do you notice? It's not just a difficult time. There is also evil oppressiveness in the middle of it. There's oppression by evil that accompanies this difficult time that he's facing. And that's the sifting process. There's a difficulty, and then there's some sort of work by the evil in this world, by Satan, to accelerate the damaging effects of the difficult circumstances. And and, and when the circumstances and the oppression combine together, uh, sifting occurs when we are tempted then to despair, we're tempted to doubt, or we're tempted even to desert, as Peter sort of does verbally over the rest of this evening. And so that's what figuratively sifting is, is when circumstances and the oppression of evil combine to bring us to that place where we're tempted to doubt and to despair and to desert. 
Now, there's precedent for this in the story of God. All throughout. Go way back to the very beginning and you see the sifting process having its way. Think of King David. King David knows that he's going to be king. He's had triumph and victory over his foes and, and, and everything looks rosy. And all of a sudden he finds himself totally on the outs and he's being chased around in the wilderness by the current king, and he's hiding out in caves, and he's struggling to find food, and he just seems to be totally at a loss. He's being sifted. He's being pursued. We think not only of David, but of Joseph, even before that. Joseph had this wonderful dream that, that he would be ruling all, over all his brothers. And, and what happens next? He's thrown in a cistern. He's sold to Egypt. He ends up in Potiphar's, Potiphar's house, a slave. He ends up in prison, sifting. Joseph is sifted. Moses has this wonderful triumph as he leads the, peop- the, people, the Israelites out of Egypt. And where does he find himself? Wandering in the wilderness with nothing to eat, uncertain of where he's to be going, sifted. And then, of course, Jesus himself, just after he's baptized and the Holy Spirit descends and makes this beautiful proclamation about him being the beloved son, and it's all victory and triumph. And the next thing you know, he's out in the desert, 40 days, without food and water, and not only the circumstance, but the oppression of evil, being tempted by Satan over and over again, sifted before he begins his ministry. And of course, the maybe most famous example of this is the person of Job. And in here, we see the dynamic between Satan and God and Job, which is really the same dynamic at work here with Peter, Satan asks if he can have Job. He he says, if I am allowed to uh, attack Job in a sense, then Job will turn away from you, God. And God says, okay, you can have Adam. And so Satan takes a crack at him, and Job at the end, through trial and difficulty, ends up being faithful to God and demonstrating uh, a certain kind of faith, but not through, not without some incredible challenges and difficulties in the midst of it. So over and over again, we see this in the story of God, that there is this sifting process, sifting process. Today, as Christians, we go through it. We shouldn't expect anything different than to go through the sifting process from time to time. And I don't know what all brings it on, but some, some, sometimes, you know, we'll be about to make a great decision in life or a very important decision, or we'll be just on the cusp of a breakthrough. And that's when Satan's attack uh, becomes most vehement against us. And so you may, you may be experiencing that right as you, you think you're at the moment of a big breakthrough or you're at the point of a great decision. Sometimes Satan will, will want to go after some weak point in our armor of life, right? Our spiritual armor. Maybe it's a, a relationship that's gone sour and there's a challenge in that relationship. And so Satan will want to exploit that and bring as much evil and bad out of it as possible. Maybe you're just simply in a time of life when you're exhausted. And in the midst of your weakness, Satan will seek to exploit that and to bring about some sort of, sort of darkness over you so that he can, he can uh, render you in, incapable of doing what God has, has asked you to do. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons. Um, sometimes uh, we could struggle with a financial uh, trouble, and, and Satan will want to exploit that to cause us to doubt. And so it's the combination of these circumstances and of the oppression of evil in our lives that bring us to this place where we're being sifted. I want to dive a little bit more deeper. I want to talk about why God might be allowing this. And there's some clues in this text and other texts why God would allow sifting to take place in our lives. But I want to just pause for a second and talk about what the experience of sifting 
is like. I've, I've, I've done some study on this, uh, not only in my own life, but also in some reading and talking with, with other Christians. And, and, and so some of these are, aren't going to be true of everybody, but they may be true of, of you and some of you in your experience of being sifted. Um, so somewhat subjective here, but there's often, it seems, both an outward and an inward component of being sifted. So there's an outward challenge and a circumstance that presents itself that's very difficult. And then there's an inward spiritual darkness to it that sometimes even seems to go beyond what the outward difficulty is. I've had those moments where, you know, some things are kind of hard, but inwardly I, I, I'm battling such darkness that doesn't seem to even make sense rationally from the standpoint of what I'm battling on the outside. And so there's an inward kind of a spiritual, and that's the oppression part. And we need to remember uh, when this foreboding or the sense of hopelessness comes upon us that, that this mirrors the biblical understanding of the world. We, we're living in a physical world, but there's a spiritual realm, and things go on in that spiritual realm that we don't have uh, sort of uh, clear eyes to see. But we experience them in our spirit when perhaps there's a certain uh, darkness or oppression that's coming on us. And so we need to know that that's just the reality of the world we live in. There's what you see and there's what you can't see, and there is work going on on both levels. Now, often this uh, time of sifting is accompanied by some sort of revealing of your own sin and idols. I don't know if some of you have experienced this, but you may have this acute sense of your own sinfulness when you're in the middle of a sifting process, a deep sense of how you've fallen short of God's glory. Uh, and you may have revealed to you some idols that you possess. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, this has come on me at times to sort of a stomach churn, churning point where for whatever reason, God allows me to see the depth of my sin and how I've turned away from him, the, the idols that I have in my life. And, and if he doesn't pull off his hand, it can become overwhelming. Uh, and so sifting is part of that process. And you see that in the life of Peter. He becomes overwhelmed by, and, and, and with sorrow. Uh, and it can be sort of gut-wrenching. And, and, and Satan wants to use that oftentimes to turn it into condemnation. And so um, for you to be uh, living under a, an oppressive condemnation is one of Satan's great goals. And so as he opens up, as your, your mind is opened up to see your own sinfulness... You know, that in and of itself may not be bad, um, but if it doesn't go somewhere positive, then Satan loves to latch onto that and to, to condemn you and to bring you down. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when we're in that, we need to remember that verse, that there is therefore now no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan wants us to forget that and to be self-condemning and to take us off track. Oftentimes, when we're in the midst of a sifting process, you will sense that the relationships around you suddenly become very tenuous. Um, relationships that seem to be on a solid footing, um, seem to be going well, suddenly you'll be doubting and wondering, and there'll be despair and discouragement around them. And, 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 and you'll be misfiring, perhaps, with, with the person. You, you think that you're, you're trying to communicate well, and everything that you say um, comes out in a way that you feel like it's going to be taken the wrong way and relationships become tenuous, and there can become a kind of paranoia even around that throughout the sifting process. There's a sense <clears throat> in which the center doesn't hold anymore in your life. You've had this sort of anchor, you, you know who you are, um, you know where you're going, 
Um, you had dreams and goals. You've been working towards those. And suddenly, all of that seems to be on shifting sand when you're being sifted. Uh, you seem to have lost your anchor. Uh, John Piper talks about this. He, he explains it this way. He talks about the deranging inability to know any longer who you are. What begins as a searching introspection for the sake of holiness and humility gradually becomes, for various reasons, a carnival of mirrors in your soul. I love that phrase. A carnival of mirrors in your soul. You look in one and you're short and fat. You look in another and you're tall and skinny. You look in another and you're upside down. Then the horrible feeling begins to break over you that you don't know who you are anymore. The center is not holding. We're in the midst of sifting. Oftentimes we come to that place where we we look in the mirrors and, and we're no longer clear on who we are and the center is not holding. And I think oftentimes... Uh, the sifting process results in a, a deep longing for wholesale change in your life. You know, you just want to throw everything to the side and do something different. My dad was a, was a minister in the Methodist church, and I remember multiple times throughout his career, he would say, I just want to quit and go become a bus driver. Now, I don't know what it was about bus driving that made him think that was somehow going to be easier um, but somehow he had this idyllic notion of bus driving. And, and when things would get hard and he was sifted, you know, it would come out. And I just vaguely remember this from a little kid and thinking, why does my dad want to become a bus driver, right? What is it about this? And worst of all, he had been a bus driver and he had been an oil tank driver and he flipped an oil tank one time. Why would you want to go back to that? But somehow he had this idyllic version. Uh, of, uh, and, and there's this sense when we're being sifted that we want to escape. And you, those wholesale comments, I just want to get up and move across the country and change everything. I want to get out of this relationship, this marriage. It's a, it's a disaster. It's not working. You know, I want to just, I want to quit my job. And unfortunately, sometimes people in the midst of those moments, they make those kinds of decisions. I, I'm telling you, I watch it happen over and over again in the midst of sifting There's that desire for the wholesale change, and somebody rashly makes a decision without waiting on the Lord, and there are consequences to that, and we watch those unfold over the coming years. And so I want us to guard against that, to know there's that temptation. It's that temptation to despair and to desert and to give it all up, and all of this is part of the sifting process. So you get a picture of what I'm talking about? And some of you, maybe you're just like, wow, poor you, you know? never experienced that. Some of you maybe know deep in your gut, you've walked through this and, and this is touching a place that needs to be touched in your life. You need to know that sifting is just a part of walking with Jesus and it's okay. Now, why does God do this? Let me, let me explore a little bit. Why does God allow us to be sifted? And there's some answers in this text and there's, there's some outside of this particular text. I think one of the key things that happens when we're being sifted is we're reminded that, look, this is a high-stakes game, this life that we live. We're not just playing around here. There is a real God, and He is holy. And there is a real Satan, and He is evil. And when you put a human being who's frail in the middle of that battle, you know, the stakes are high. This is a big deal. Satan wants you. He wants to destroy you because you have the image of God, and he hates God. He hates God, and he can't get at God, so the next best thing is to get at you because you bear the image of God. And God really is holy. You know, his standards really are high, and when we have those moments where we come into 
face-to-face with the, 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 the holiness of God, we're undone. Like Isaiah, right? We're undone. It's just the reality. This is the world that we live in. And when we're sifted, you know, it all takes a kind of a deeper gravity, doesn't it? Oh, man, this is, this is a high-stakes game. This life is the real deal. We're not mess- God's not messing around when he created people and created this world. This isn't a video game. This is the real deal. And there's a sense when we're being sifted that we're brought back into that reality. See, that's the reality. We live oftentimes on a superficial plane, but that's the reality. And sifting brings us right into contact with it. Now, what else happens when we're being sifted? Um, it allows us to demonstrate before the world our faith. It's an opportunity to show our faith and to glorify God. You see what Jesus prays for Peter as he's entering into this time of sifting. That you would have, remain faithful. That your faith would be strong. That's the goal. That is the goal when we're being sifted, is to have faith. That's all. Simple. That's the goal. And when, and you've seen this before, in somebody's life, when they're broken over and over again. Somebody, you know some people who are like, wow, Lord, why do they have to suffer so much? Right? And then you realize what a gift their suffering is to you. Because when you're going through hard times, you think of them. And you think to yourself, how did they make it through that? I'm dealing with half of what they were dealing with. And they remain faithful. And it's a testimony to the power of God and to the glory of God. Their faith is. And so when we go through a time of sifting, that's part of the deal. That we're becoming, we're becoming like trophies of, of God's grace in the midst of the world. And people will look to that, and they will be encouraged and strengthened. And in fact, that's what we're supposed to do, as, as Peter was told, to, again, when you've been restored, to go strengthen your brothers, okay? So part of this is a strengthening process. That's what happened with Job. We, 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 so, we need the book of Job, right? We need to know that there was a man who's been through what we've been through. And he came out on the other side. We need it desperately. We need the story of Peter. And then thirdly, so it's a, we're reminded that it's a high-stakes game. We're, we're, we're given the opportunity to, to glorify God in our faith in the midst of sifting. And then sifting also has the wonderful benefit of refining our character. This is what sifting is, right? It's separating the wheat. It's taking what's not necessary away from what's necessary. And sifting has this wonderful process of re- refining the character. Now, in the life of Peter, we see this because he's going to go ahead and deny Jesus and uh, then there's going to be a time, and when you put all the Gospels together, what you see is at the end, when Jesus rises from the dead and he comes back to the disciples, he reinstates Peter, and one of the things he asks Peter is, do you love me? Hmm. Now, that was an interesting question before this whole denial piece, right? But now it becomes a very, very interesting question after the sifting that Peter's gone through. When Jesus asks that question, it has a whole deeper meaning when, when Peter says, yes, I love you. And you know Peter, in the back of his mind, is thinking of all the ways in which he has failed to love, and yet he's been given another opportunity by grace to express his love. And so there's this deepening and this refining of the character. Do you think Peter's going to think twice next time somebody asks him, do you know that Jesus guy, you know, after he's been through this process of refining? And after he's denied Jesus three times, there's a refining of his character. He's becoming more like Jesus in the process. And that's a hard thing. Um, but it's a, a true thing. Uh, Spurgeon, who's a pastor in the 1800s, a wonderful pastor in England, says this. He went through, Spurgeon had an incredible ministry. Thousands of people came to faith through his ministry. 
um, even to this day, you read his writings and you just go, oh my goodness, this guy loves Jesus and, and what an effect he had on the world. But all through his ministry, he suffered from depression, from gout, his wife became an invalid, um, thing after thing after thing he struggled with. And even so, this is what he says. He says, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. There's some refining, there's some transformation that occurs when we're sifted. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Now, what do we do then? Because this is a part of what it means to follow Christ. And uh, sorry to be the bearer of bad news there, but uh, ultimately it's good news. What do we do in the midst of the times, when the seasons when we're being sifted? How do, we, how do we move through it? How do we walk through it? And from this text, we get, uh, just quickly, four ways to think uh, about being sifted. The first one is this. Simply be on guard against overconfidence. Be on guard against overconfidence. That's something that applies to us anytime. Because Satan loves to twist our overconfidence and use it against us. That's what happened with uh, Peter, right? Oh, Jesus, I'm going to follow you all the way to death. And then moments later, we're going to find he's not even willing to say he's associated with Jesus. I watched uh, Captain Phillips uh, this weekend on Friday night. Jody and I watched it. And it's the story of these Somali pirates that take an American ship. And these pirates are so confident. They're so confident that they're going to be successful. And the way that they're undone is really through their confidence. And their confidence being used against them. And see, that's the tactic that, sa- that always works with human beings. And that's the tactic that Satan loves to use with us. To get us overconfident, and then when we're not being careful, to then step in and take advantage of us. And we, as human beings, as Americans, are very confident people. David Brooks has done some writing on this. He's kind of got this as a theme, uh, New York Times columnist columnist, and he chronicles the ways in which Americans are overconfident. He asks all kinds of questions about sports and athletics, and Americans, unlike others, will tend to say, you know, in, in the numbers of, you know, 80 to 90 percent, that they're above average in comparison to everybody else. Now, that can't be, right? You, you, not everybody can be 80 percent, right? It just can't be, but that's our self-perception. He even, he even talks about how men are two times more likely to drown in pools because they're overconfident about their, their swimming ability, especially after they've been drinking. So, uh, and you look at sports and the way people respond in sports and stuff, and we had stuff with the Super Bowl even this time. It's just, this kind of stuff never would have happened in the past. They ask high school students, uh, how many of you think you're a very important person in the 50s? 12% said they were. In, in today, they ask that question, 80% of the kids say they're a very important person, right? So we're just creating this culture of overconfidence. And, and, and I think Satan is using it already against us. And, and you see that in the decline of the church, right? And so um, we've got we to gotta address this. So just like Peter, we have to be careful about being overconfident. And this is one of my hobby horses, but I really believe that humility 
in most cases is, is sort of like the super drug spiritually for all of our ills. And it's the antidote to all of these kinds of things. So many of the problems we face would be, would be addressed if we would seek humility on a deeper level. And this is certainly one of them. That when we're in the place of humility before God and we understand the reality of his holiness, we understand the, the force of Satan's work in the world, we understand our own frailty, we take that place of humility, then we are in position to combat the schemes of the devil in a way that we are not otherwise. So beware of being over, beyond your guard against overconfidence. Pursue humility. The second one is to keep the goal in mind. What's the goal, according to Jesus, when we are in the midst of being sifted? What is it? It's faith. Because that's what he prays for, for Peter, right? He, said, uh, he says, um, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That is the goal. And you say, that's very scary on some level, and yes, it is. But on another level, isn't it simple? When you're in the time of sifting, and you're in the middle of it, and all hell is breaking loose, and the circumstances are going all awry, and you feel the spiritual oppression on top of that, what's your job? Keep on believing. That's all. You probably can't solve it all. You can't fix it all. Your job is to keep on believing, trusting God. Reading those scriptures that remind you of God's promises over your life. Having your brothers and sisters in Christ pray for you. Keep on coming to worship. Don't isolate yourself. Keep on seeking to nurture the faith that you have. Just to hang on. That's your job in the midst of sifting. All right, the third one. Keep the goal in mind, uh, which is faith. The third one is remember the victory of Jesus. Now, I said that Jesus was sifted, and he was sifted in that desert, right? Right after his baptism, he was sifted. But he was sifted much more fully at the end of his life when he went to the cross. And what's amazing about the sifting of Jesus is that it resulted in the victory, not only of him, but of all of us in the face of evil. I want to read to you from Colossians 2, verse 8. Colossians 2, verse 8, in Encourage you even to note down this passage um, if you are in the midst of some sifting. So important. In that, Paul writes to the disciples in Colossae, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. See, there it is. That's what we want to stand against. According to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, there were teachers coming and and asking all the Christians that they be circumcised, and, and Paul is saying to them, look, you don't have to worry about it. You're taken care of in Christ. Christ has already done it all for you. You don't have to worry about that. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's already taken care of it. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And listen to this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That debt is canceled, and that's the debt that Satan keeps bringing up and saying, it's not canceled, you're condemned. But at Jesus, it's canceled in Christ. 
canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, do you hear that? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's Satan and all his minions. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. That's what he did on the cross. That's the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. He put all of the ruling authorities of this world, infiltrated by evil, he put them all to shame on that cross, beginning with the chief, Satan himself, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you need to hear that verse sometimes? Take that home with you. Jesus, in his sifting, gained the victory over evil. And because of that, you can hold on a little longer. You can wait and you can have faith because Jesus gained the victory on the cross. He nailed it to the cross. And when you come through this, the fourth thing that we do is we strengthen others. Anybody who's been sifted is now a teacher in the body of Christ. That's what it says. If you've been sifted and you've come through, now you teach others. You be an example to others. You say, well, I failed in the middle of my sifting. So did Peter. So did Peter. Peter failed miserably. And sometimes that's our example. In the midst of our failure, we become trophies of grace. And that's our teaching to the rest. That we weren't destroyed by the sifting, that we might have stumbled, but that God picked us up, and in His grace, He showed His power. And some of us may, you know, at times, be successful in the sifting and, and demonstrate great faith, and then you're a teacher of faith. The people will look at your life and they'll say, oh man, look at how he or she goes through that challenging time. Look at the faith that they have. I want to be like that. I, that encourages my faith. If you've been through sifting, you're a teacher. By negative example or positive example. See, Jesus gets the victory every way that it happens. He always does. He always gets the victory. And so, God, would you help us as a community of faith, as a congregation, to be faithful in the midst of our sifting? Sometimes we face it collectively. Sometimes we face it individually. Sometimes we face it in our families. God, we know our marching orders right now today. Our marching orders are simply to, to keep hanging on, to, to have faith. And we declare to you that it's our intention to believe in the midst of the sifting process that you have us in, or that you will have us in. So we gird ourselves up today. We're reminded that we're not alone. We're reminded that, that in fact, our very Lord went through sifting. And we are not alone. We remind ourselves also that we have the victory because of what Jesus did on the cross. That no sifting will result in our final full destruction, ever, but that Jesus will have his resurrection way with us at some point now and fully in the future. So help us to, to lean confidently into the victory that was won on the cross. Lord, help us to be humble, not to be overconfident. Help us to not 
not to be easily deceived, but to be wise and thoughtful, not to reach out in panic, but to wait upon you. God, make us a community of teachers that strengthen one another in the faith in the midst of sifting. In Christ's name we pray, amen.